Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, ideas and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I'm talking to you from the German Alps where I am meeting with the Munich Security Forum to talk about geopolitics and I'm literally sandwiched between the euphoria in Austria after the election of Alexander von der Bellen as president, the Green Party candidate against the far right uh, Norbert Hofer, and the anxiety on the other side of the Alps in Italy after the no vote by quite a large margin on the Italian referendum on constitutional reform. I have two great experts to talk to us about these uh, two votes. First up is Natalie Tocci, who is the deputy director of the Italian uh, Institute for International Affairs, EI, and also a councillor to the um, High Representative for Foreign Affairs. And uh, second up is uh, Wolfgang Schussel, the former Chancellor of Austria, who will tell us about the election in his country. So, Natalie, um, all of Europe is uh, focused on uh, the outcome of these two votes. There was a brief moment of euphoria after the Austrian vote and then now all the talk is about Italy as the next domino to fall to this global wave of populism which worked its way through the Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump. Um, tell us uh, what we should think about this uh, referendum and, and what it means both for Italy but also for, for the European project more generally. Well, let me start by uh, pointing out the fact that the Austrian elections and the Italian referendum were completely different stories. In the case of Austria, this was indeed uh, a story between, if you like, the populist right uh, against a pro-European, if you like, establishment. Uh, in the case of Italy, uh, what Italians voted on yesterday was a reform of their constitution. Uh, and as you said, uh, that proposed reform was uh, rejected by a fairly large margin by 60% of Italians. Exactly, 60% of Italians. Let me say that in that 60% you find all sorts of things. Uh, you indeed find uh, populists, uh, both on the left and on the right, and on the not so sure whether they're left or right, meaning the Five Star Movement. Um, you will find quite a few establishment figures that actually thought that the uh, proposed uh, reform was too messy, too complicated, uh, perhaps could have been a marginal improvement had it carried, been carried out uh, differently and perhaps better. So the, um, most, the most establishment of establishment figures was um, Mario, Mario Monti, was a very clear case. Life. Exactly. How more establishment can well, be precise. Than that? So uh, all this to say that it shouldn't be read as a populist versus establishment vote. It was a far more complicated picture that came out. Um, and let me also uh, point out one other fact, i.e. Um, the fact that both, um, the, even within, sorry, the Democrat Party itself, there was quite a lot of opposition um, to, the, uh, to the proposed referendum suggests that that 41% uh, almost uh, that the Prime Minister uh, gained uh, was actually support almost for him personally. Now that's not a bad place to start if you actually do want at some point, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, uh, make a comeback to politics. Now he has resigned. Uh, there is talk about him resigning also as chairman of the party. Um, let us see whether that uh, happens. 
Um, but all this to say that A, one shouldn't read it as a populist result. Uh, B, one shouldn't read it necessarily as, uh, if you like, Renzi uh, moving indefinitely out of the political picture in Italy. That being said, um, the markets are reading it as a populist result. Um, the Five Star Movement are reading it as a, an affirmation of their um, uh, dominance of Italian political uh, life at the moment, along with the Northern League and, and other parties. And Renzi was one of the last mainstream uh, leaders. I get that it is more complicated maybe than some of the, the press coverage suggests, but at the same time, it's pretty clear that for the Five Star Movement and the Northern League, who are the two uh, big political forces that are in the ascendant in Italy, it is seen as a, a vote for populism and for their kind of politics. It's also pretty clear that Renzi was one of the last powerful mainstream uh, centrist leaders along with uh, Angela Merkel so the fact that he's gone makes the that club much smaller in the in the European Council and um, it is happening at a time when there does seem to be a wave sweeping through the world so I think you have to put forward a, a stronger case for Italian exceptionalism if you want to to fully convince everyone that uh, that this has nothing to do with what's going on in all the other countries in the developed world. No, I mean, of course it does. And of course there is a populist wave uh, sort of, you know, you know, crossing Italy in the same way as it is doing in other countries. But my, my point is really, what does this referendum result mean for upcoming elections? Because at the end of the day, that's what matters. As I said, this was a referendum on the constitutional reform. They were not national elections. Uh, and we will be having national elections, presumably, in the course of the next year. I don't know whether it's the next few months or the next uh, year. There will be elections before 2000, uh, at the beginning, at the latest by the beginning of 2018, most likely before then. Uh, unlikely that we will have elections in the next couple of months because the electoral law has to be changed. Um, in order for those elections to take place. So I guess my, my point is, does this referendum result increase or reduce uh, the chances of, for instance, the Five Star Movement rising to power? And my, the point that I'm making here is that I wouldn't necessarily read a 60% no in the referendum as necessarily increasing the chances of the Five Star Movement. Now, I take the point that they, they are reading it this way, uh, and indeed many others are reading it this way. Um, I'm not entirely sure had um, the uh, had Renzi won this referendum by a, a very narrow margin, which would have been the boss, best of possible circumstances, I think, for him. I think he never expected to win by 60%. Maybe he did at the beginning when he called for it. Right, exactly, which uh, goes back to the original sin, if you like, in this in this whole story. Uh, but certainly, you know, over the last uh, six months, uh, that hasn't been the expectation. My point is simply to say that had he scraped a victory, that wouldn't necessarily have increased his chances of an electoral victory in the next coming in the next elections. So I like to go a bit more deeply into all of those things. But first of all, maybe we can just start with some factual stuff. So what happens next? Renzi's resigned. There's going to be some kind of technical government. Um, people talking about Padoan, the, the economics minister, as, as a possible prime minister. 
Yeah, so, okay, so now Renzi has resigned. Uh, the decision is up to the President uh, of the Republic, Mattarella, to make his next moves. What we uh, hear and what we understand is that, obviously, he has the stability uh, of the country and, in particular, of the economy uh, at heart. Um, and there is the not minor point of the fact that we do need to have a new electoral law. Uh, the uh, electoral law that uh, Renzi himself is negotiated is out uh, of the window, although it was not what uh, the Italians were called upon to vote in the referendum, but it was seen as being strictly tied uh, to the constitutional uh, reform. Um, but the existing uh, electoral law has been deemed unconstitutional uh, by the court, and therefore there has to be a reform of the electoral law. So at the very least, what Materella will have to do uh, is... Uh, obviously together with Renzi's agreement, because let's not forget the fact that whatever government there will be will have to be voted in by Parliament, and the Democrat Party has the majority of seats in Parliament. Um, so together with uh, Renzi, in conversation with Renzi, we will have to figure out who is the best candidate for the job. And indeed, uh, one of the main names which is being mentioned at the moment uh, is uh, the current finance minister, uh, Piercarlo Paduan. Other names are being uh, floated around. Um, I uh, suspect that it may not be in Renzi's best interest to have a figure which is too closely associated with him uh, and too closely associated with his party. Uh, so indeed, it would seem to me to be a rational move to have someone like Pardoan who, on the one hand, would uh, reassure markets, uh, on the other, clearly does not have party political ambitions. Um, uh, and uh, thirdly, which uh, is not too closely associated with Renzi and therefore that uh, Renzi could somehow take you know, some sort of distancing from uh, in order, if he eventually decides to remain uh, in Italian politics, in order to basically begin his own uh, electoral campaign. So when do, what's the sort of timetable for these sorts of things? When are we going to know who the new Prime Minister is going to be, what's going to happen with the law, whether the elections are going to be in, 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 the, in the spring or in a year's time? Um, well, very difficult to tell. I mean, I would have thought that we will know before the end of the year who the next Prime Minister will be. Uh, the, the, the point here is finding a figure that is likely to win the support, you know, a parliamentary uh, support, obviously. Um, so there will be sort of intense conversations over the next uh, few days. Uh, I mean, let's not also forget the fact that a no vote in this referendum was not completely off the map. In fact, it increasingly looked likely. Uh, and therefore, these have been conversations which uh, behind closed doors have been uh, already taking place. Um, so all this to say that I would expect there to be, um, I don't know whether I'm expecting it or I'm hoping it, uh, but I would expect there to be uh, a new uh, prime minister and therefore a new government, uh, hopefully by the end of the year, beginning of next year. Uh, I do not expect uh, elections to take place uh, before late spring at the very earliest. Uh, I think it's more likely to think of an end of 2017 for, for new elections. So one of the other interesting things about the, the vote was the, the breakdown into different groups. It looks like young people by a huge margin voted no. Um, it was older middle class people who were voting um, yes. Um, it seems like almost the, the opposite of the of the Brexit vote in, in Britain. Yeah, precisely. It is the complete opposite of the Brexit vote. I mean, the problem 
uh, with with Renzi and his narrative is that, in a sense, he came to power uh, as the Ruttamatore. He was the one so that was the going bulldozer. to uh, the bulldozer that was going to get rid of the old political uh, class uh, that would represent um, the new generation. And the problem has been increasingly, uh, and in particular over the last uh, months of his uh, government, uh, that he became increasingly associated with the establishment. Um, so basically what you've been seeing in a, in a situation in which that establishment is, is seen and, is, and continues to be seen as not delivering, particularly on the economy. Yeah. Um, so basically what you're seeing is indeed older generations that uh, fear the unknown and fear instability uh, that basically will and are likely to continue, continue to vote in an establishment way. Uh, and basically younger generations that keep not having jobs or having extremely precarious work conditions are basically wanting to experiment with something different. So, And to what extent is Europe seen as part of the establishment? Because I think the Italy has been more affected than any other country by the flow of, of refugees and migrants, probably in absolute numbers anyway, it's certainly one of the, the most affected countries in Europe. And yet, I think there is a, a, a sense in Italy that you've been left on your own and Europe hasn't really risen to the challenge. You've been good Europeans all these years, but when something happens to Italy, both on that and on the Euro crisis, you've been cut dry and, and so as a result there's been this kind of extraordinary shift from the country where federalism was born the country of Spinelli and the Treaty of Rome and Messina is now this hotbed of Euroscepticism how, how does the referendum play into that Yes, I mean, indeed, it has. Uh, I mean, you, Italian Euroscepticism has a particular flavour to it. I mean, it is not Euroscepticism which is rooted on the uh, desire to be sovereign and independent. So it's a very different quality, if you like, in nature uh, than, for instance, British uh, Euroscepticism or indeed Euroscepticism in other, particularly oh, North European uh, really? countries. Really? I mean, the Five Star Movement said it wants to lead the Euro. That does seem a bit like but it sovereignty says, and independence. Not being wanted to be dictated to by the Germans is a kind of sovereignty seeking isn't what, it? what you will hear them saying is uh, if you were to have a different Europe uh, they would sign up to a federal Europe after tomorrow yeah uh, but, but the Europe point is not that, on offer well precisely the but classic, the Europe that they the would like to yeah the Europe that, that they would like to um, the alternative for Deutschland also says they would love like a different Europe but one which is also not on offer one yes, without Italy in yes it. but what I'm saying is that there's something qualitatively different between a a party or movement that uh, would nonetheless advocate a federal Europe which may not be on offer as opposed to one that the very concept of a federal Europe uh, is a complete aberration uh, I mean there is something very different about those two uh, but they things. they have the five-star movement has said it wants to withdraw from the euro the northern league is pretty Euros I mean it's a quite a classic form of euro skepticism it's not that I would say that the, right the northern northern league is indeed a classic form of euro skepticism I wouldn't put the five star movement in the same box in this respect, particularly if one looks at their base. Um, what you hear them criticizing are the kind of economic policies that Europe has been pursuing. Uh, I think it's been mainly a story about the economies, far less a story actually about migration. Uh, the story about migration has been 
upfront, particularly when it comes to the government itself. I mean, Renzi has been extremely critical of the way in which the EU has been handling the refugee uh, issue and indeed this feeling of being left behind. But that is an argument that my, my sense is that it has less traction amongst the public. For the public, the bottom line is the economy. Uh, and up until when the EU will be seen as delivering on policies which uh, increase uh, in economic instability uh, and, and precarious work conditions and doesn't uh, tackle the unemployment and growth questions, uh, that Euroscepticism will be, will be present. So if we think about the next three months to a year um, of political vacuum where you've got this technical government coming in, what are the big issues which are going to determine what happens and whether there is a sort of rupture in Italian politics and the election of a new, of a completely different kind of government led by the Five Star Movement? Well, I would say it will depend to an extent on what the Five Star Movement itself does. Uh, now, the Five Star Movement uh, is already in power in places, including in the capital city. Now, it's not doing fantastically well at governance of Rome. Now, truth be said, it's not a particularly easy thing to do to govern Rome. Uh, but yet, if you uh, have another few months of complete chaos in Rome, which is what we're having at the moment, well, that presumably at some point will start having an impact on uh, the support of the Five Star Movement uh, itself. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, so the, the second point will depend on the extent to which Renzi himself, from uh, an opposition standpoint, will manage to recapture the mantle of the reformer, uh, the, the, the one that will stand up for the new generations, uh, the bulldozer that will get rid of the old establishment. Um, now, he has been extremely uh, sort of good at doing this in the past. It will obviously take quite a bit of work uh, to shake off, if you like, the establishment mantle that he's been wearing over the last few months. But uh, he's an extremely talented individual. and I wouldn't put it uh, past him at all. Um, so I think the way in which Renzi himself positions himself uh, and acts in the next months, uh, the failures, if you like, or successes, who knows, of the Five Star Movement uh, will also depend, uh, determine to a large extent, uh, if you like, the way in which the wind will blow. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the extent to which uh, this technical, stroke political, whatever it's going to be, uh, government is actually going to be able to deliver uh, on a num number of issues and in particular uh, prevent the country from sliding into a banking crisis and, and what have you. Great. Thank you very much, Natalie. We'll, we'll, I'm sure, come back between now and the elections and we'll see, we'll see what happens. So the other big event which the world was looking at this week was the Austrian presidential elections. Um, it's the second time that the vote has taken place after there were irregularities in the, in the first round. And I'm joined by the former Chancellor of Austria, Wolfgang Schussel, who is going to explain what happened and why um, the Green candidate, Alexander van der Bellen, managed to, to get an edge um, and to confirm his victory in the elections. So first of all, I, I don't think that the world looked um, at Austria. Um, we are a minor issue. This is uh, we are nine million people, um, and um, the presidential election is more a, symb a symbolic uh, event. Uh, but nevertheless, it was uh, for us important uh, a surprise because it was the third run. The first uh, round, um, um, the other candidates were, were, so to say, sorted out and only two of them came into the second round. Uh, the, this election in June won um, Alexander van der Bellen with, uh, with, a, with a close uh, majority. And then the Constitutional Court uh, decided uh, there must be a rerun. 
big surprise for a lot of people in Austria. Nothing. Um, a lot of voters were disappointed uh, and maybe a little bit fed up with uh, this rerun, and um, therefore we had interestingly a higher turnout of the election. I think 74 percent, which is a lot, and uh, de facto the result was. Uh, was the same with a better result for the green candidate with uh, around uh, 53, 53 point something uh, percent. And um, uh, this is uh, something which is a surprise because for the first time in our history, um, a candidate of the opposition party, uh, former leader of the Green Party, is now the uh, president elect. So, how much were other events like the election of Donald Trump, the Brexit vote, playing on the minds, do you think, of, of Austrian voters? I think the American election did not really play a role. Brexit maybe could have an impact because, uh, so to say, the the status and the role of Austria in the European Union, this was an issue. And uh, there were some, uh, some, some different approaches. Uh, um, the Greens were originally against uh, uh, Austria's uh, uh, entry into the um, European Union, the European Community at that time, but now absolutely pro-European, were strongly defending um, the European Union. And the Freedom Party was uh, originally one of the first parties uh, supporting um, EU membership uh, in, for the, for in, in 94 when we had uh, the referendum, they were, they were against Austria's uh, membership, and they are always slightly sceptical. There were sometimes uh, um, announcements uh, we should have a referendum or something like that. But during the campaign, uh, also uh, Norbert Hopper was uh, de facto uh, positive to the European Union, but slightly sceptical on some elements and some approaches of the Union. So I think it was also a pro-European vote this Sunday. So you have uh, more experience than anyone of, of dealing with far-right parties. Um, you were um, in power when the FPÖ um, last surged in, in the polls, and you um, were responsible for, for forming a government with them and dealing with some of the, the European ramifications of that. How different do you think the world of 2016 is from... Uh, the world um, when you were Chancellor and, and, and dealing with um, with the FPO's success in the polls? So first of all, I, I was member of a so-called Grand Coalition when it was really a Grand Coalition when Social Democrats and uh, the Christian, my Christian Democratic Party, the People's Party, had uh, more than 75%. Um, and uh, I was also leading uh, as Prime Minister, a coalition with the Freedom Party for seven years, a very successful coalition. Although there were some uh, critics at the beginning, but at the end everybody accepted uh, this uh, democratic decision. And I think it depends on the program, it depends on the personalities. And uh, when I formed uh, the coalition with the Freedom Party, uh, we had a very clear pro-European program. And this was uh, my precondition from the very beginning. Uh, I will only lead the coalition of the government when uh, there is uh, the, the membership of, the, of Austria and the, pro, and the proactive uh, role of Austria is absolutely guaranteed. And it happened. For instance, uh, the constitutional treaty uh, of the European Union was with one vote against de facto un with unanimity decided. The same, the enlargement of the 
uh, to the uh, Eastern, Middle and Eastern European countries was with a, a huge majority decided, I think one or two extensions. So I think uh, the result proved this was okay. Now, of course, the situation is a little bit different because uh, the Freedom Party is in opposition and therefore they are criticizing a lot of uh, program elements of the government uh, and are much more skeptical now on um, the European Union and uh, especially some policies of the European Union. And uh, I think the migration crisis played a very important role, even during this uh, election campaign. Can I ask you one more final question, maybe, about the whole question of how to deal with populist parties? Because I think there are two main schools of thought. One school of thought thinks that the best way of normalizing these parties is to make sure that they have to take responsibility by being part of governments and um, can't just simply stay on the outside of the political process and complain about everything that's happening. The other approach is to think that there should be a sort of cordon sanitaire kept around them, not to have platforms, not to have dialogue with them. Um, what, what does your experience of being at the top of, of Austrian politics for a long time tell you is more effective and what are the dangers with the, the two approaches? You are right, uh, there are not only two, but there are much more uh, possibilities to deal with uh, protest parties, populist parties, anti-European uh, parties. Um, either to to stay silent, not mention them, exclude them, uh, ridicule, ridicule them, um, to uh, forbid them, to ban them, to build uh, a cordon sanitaire, as you mentioned it, but also to integrate or to accept some issues, to steal some issues from them. Uh, or to integrate them in local governments or even in the national government. And I think there is no general rule. You can have, you have uh, successful experiences in one or another way. Uh, for instance, the true Finns were integrated in the Finnish government. And uh, in the beginning they had 20%, then at the end they had 8%. In our case, uh, the Freedom Party started with uh, 27%. Um, entering in the government and they ended up with 10%. Now in opposition they are again up to probably around 30%. So there is no general rule. It depends on uh, case by case because the populist parties are not uh, the same. You have uh, UKIP for instance is uh, Eurosceptics, anti-immigration, taking back control but not at all racist or anti-free trade. IFT, for instance, in Germany started with uh, an uh, anti-Greece policy, Euro Eurozone crisis, etc. It's now much more focused on migration issues. You have Wilders uh, in, uh, in, in, in Holland, which is different from Le Pen, Marine Le Pen's uh, National Front. Uh, the IFT is a new party, the Freedom Party is an old party in Austria. So you should not mix up everything. The Polish Kaczynski parties or uh, Viktor Orban's Fidesz. I mean, uh, these are or the, the left one, the left populist parties like Syriza or Podemos. Uh, I think um, each policy, each country should find and should design their own policy. And I think it's up to the traditional parties to find uh, an active role to stand up for for something and not being against something. Uh, I will never forget uh, Jean Monnet. Uh, he said uh, he was one of the founding fathers of the European Union, saying there are always two 
major powers in politics, the dynamic of angst and the dynamic of uh, hope. And I think this is exactly what we see today, that with Trump and uh, Brexit and the uh, Freedom Party in Austria or AfD in Germany. And I think we, the traditional parties, uh, especially now center-right, we should offer hope to the people, to the average citizens, to the farmers, to the business people, to the workers, uh, to the young, to the older, Give them hope that even in a difficult time, and an interesting time, by the way, uh, we can be optimistic because uh, a lot of inventions, a lot of tendencies are not negative. They give us uh, new, new, channel new challenges, new chances, new, new opportunities. And I think uh, this is something what uh, traditional parties sometimes forget. Thank you very much. So that brings this podcast to an end. If you've enjoyed it, please do give us a review or a rating on iTunes, as that seems to really help drive people to the podcast, or on SoundCloud, MixCloud, or whatever platform you're using to listen to it. Write about it on your Facebook page or on ECFR's Facebook page. Tweet about it, and please do get in touch with me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu if you have any comments on the podcast. But for now, from Natalie Tocci, Wolfgang Schussel, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Katharina Botel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.